Hello and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Today I am joined by two Californians, again. I bet the weather is nice there. Whatever. Anyway, James Fennessy is the Associate Dean of Faculty for History at SNHU. And Joshua Peabody is a senior archaeologist for Stantec Consulting Services in Sacramento. Today we're going to talk about Josh's background, his work in archaeology and anthropology, and the field of cultural resource management in general. And for those of you brave souls who get all the way to the end of this episode, we have a special bonus. We are going to stumble our way through a quick game of Super Fight using the History Deck expansion. It gets kind of weird. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Joshua Peabody and I am a archaeologist and cultural resources group manager for a private consulting firm that does environmental impact analysis and permitting for projects in the United States and Canada. Could you share a little bit about your uh, background then, kind of your training and your history in history, and how that brought you to the role that you're currently in? Certainly. I grew up in a small town in Northern California, and about the seventh grade developed a strong interest in history and social studies. I went to junior college uh, as part of my senior year of high school, and then first two years of my college career and took classes in the humanities and history. And it was in at that time that I developed an interest also in anthropology. And so my evolution there was really, I discovered in junior college that my, my interest in history, what interested me most was the human side of things and sort of explanatory models. And so I started to get into anthropological theory. And that ultimately led to, into my undergraduate, which was at California State University, Chico. I did a, two majors, anthropology with an emphasis in what's called zooarchaeology, which is the study of animal bones from archaeological sites. And then also in uh, history, and it was focused on Latin American history with the emphasis being on art and architecture. As an undergrad at CSU Chico, I began working, once I, once I started in the subdiscipline of anthropology that is archaeology, I started working as an archaeologist in the summers for the Forest Service doing archaeological inventory mainly for post-burn, post-wildfire projects, finding and recording archaeological sites that had been affected by wildfires. and. That sort of protracted my undergraduate <laughs> term. It, That'll do it, yeah. Yeah, because those summers extended into fall semesters. I started to work in what ultimately became my career, which is cultural resources management as an undergrad. Uh, so after six years of undergrad, <laughs> I, I, can, I finished. Really, I was six and a half, so I know what that's like. <laughs> what was what was really kind of glorious about working though for the Forest Service was up until that point archaeology always seemed like kind of a thing that I don't know 19th century people of means did as a 
hobby, when in reality there's actually a fairly large number of archaeologists working in what we would call the public sector or applied archaeology or applied anthropology and cultural resources management. And what really attracted me was the work, which was you know essentially hiking in the mountains with your lunch on your back and a clipboard, and that's your day, spending it all day in the woods with other like-minded people, you know, and just kind of, it was a it was a very fun time. And being paid for it was pretty cool. Uh, and it was a big switch from working in restaurants, and you know, I've had a job loading the beer trucks with a forklift and various other things to pay the rent. So it was very cool to use anthropology to pay the rent. I continued to study zooarchaeology at uh, UC Santa Cruz. Uh, I focused there on... My master's work was on the local extirpation of northern fur seal. The research question there had a historical aspect. The northern fur seal does not live on the California, Oregon, or, or Washington coast so much anymore. It's locally extinct. It still lives in the Pribilof Islands in Alaska, and there's also southern fur seals. Archaeologically, there's a question about was it the... Russian fur trade that really spelled the demise of the northern fur seal, or did it happen earlier prior to European contact in the New World? Did, or did you come to a, a conclusion on that about the fur trade? Uh, yeah, so the fur seal goes goes is locally extirpated about 150 years prior to contact, and so it, so the question has now become: Was it a human caused extirpation, or was it? something to do with the environment, climate change, or things like that. And it does happen to correspond with the medieval climatic anomaly. Mm -hmm. And that's that's when archaeologically, in, in the archaeological sites that we have fur seal, you know, we have a good 8,000-year record of people eating fur seals. During the MC, the medieval climatic anomaly, the fur seal, they spike in those sites, and then they diminish very quickly toward the end. And then... There's sort of dribs and drabs of fur seal bones and sites after that, and then not much at all. What's really interesting about your background and the topics that you've introduced is that you've introduced three different things. So you're talking about the fur trade. You're talking about human history. You've introduced the experiences of animals. So I don't know, would that officially be zoology? And then you have anthropology and also climate history. So you, you really do have a broad range of interests here. And I'm interested, I can't wait to see how all of these connected to bring you to where you currently are in the field. Well, and that was, that's the beauty of anthropology to me is that we're sort of masters of nothing and we attempt to do everything. We're like really bad geologists, really bad <laughs> soil scientists. You know, we, but we try. <laughs> but we have to, all those things have to interconnect because we have to dig up this stuff and wash it off and sort it out, and then we create data from it. You know, we create that information. You know, a bone that comes out of the ground doesn't have much meaning until you start assigning it to it, and then you have to put that into that historical context, and so that that's what's really attractive to me and, and interesting. I, I am very much interested in historical ecology, is what we would call it, and, and reconstruction of the paleo environment and the relationship between humans and their environment. Uh, as an undergrad, I did work on archaeological sites in the Lassen Peak area and was working on establishing seasonal migration of mule deer through time. 
And so we had about a 4,000-year record all the way up to the present, including video capture data of these animals and their migration patterns and things. And what's interesting in, in that is that prehistorically, we can track those animals moving in a much different seasonal pattern. They tend to stay in near Lassen Peak much later into the year. And what it corresponds with is actually a hunting season. What happened prehistorically is your average mule deer was sort of moving out of the, getting out of the hills and down into the valley all the way into December. And now, basically, you won't find a mule deer after October 1st in those upper elevations, and that's the first day of rifle season. And so it's either deer are smart and they hear gunfire and they leave because uh, there's no hunting in the valley. Or deer do have sort of a social aspect and the, and the hunting pressure may have sort of selected out those populations which tended to stay up in those upper areas longer. So I'm very much interested in historical ecology and the evolution of the sort of what, what in Europe they call man-land studies. So that's my education background for a while feel as though I would go into academics, and I had two really great, well, I had a lot of great professors, both undergrad and, and grad school, and there's a moment in my career where I was deciding between the private sector or continuing to work toward the PhD and enter that <laughs> that world. I've always been, had, I've always had a lot of anxiety around <laughs> my job and my ability to work and pay my bills. And you know. <laughs> and that plus the, the really great professors I had at UC Santa Cruz, you know, in grad school, you get to know those people too well, probably. <laughs> but, but I really respected who they were in the discipline, and especially you know, my main faculty advisor. But what I started to realize was if I was going to pursue that career I would want to do it at the level in the way that they had. And I started to realize that the things in their life that they had excluded to get there and maintain mm -hmm. that level was not for me. That's understandable. I know a lot of those academics also, and I have also seen the things that they put aside and you know, just ignore and their almost supernatural focus on obscure academic topics in some ways is very admirable. But in order to do that, you have to balance it out by losing a lot of other parts of your life. And so I, I get it. <laughs> I, I understand. Yeah. And then there was, you know, I had from the years I worked before grad school, I had a lot of contacts. And so there was a day that I was sitting in my advisor's lab and she kind of joked because she was, she had never really been exposed to the cultural resources management world. She knew it existed, and she had friends in it, but she didn't really have a grasp on sort of the how large of an industry it is. And she kind of joked with me, like, because she wanted me to continue on, and and I was in the midst of that decision. And she she kind of dared me to try to get a job. And so I picked up the phone and I called a friend at the Forest Service and I reported to an archaeologist position with the Forest Service full time. Two weeks later, and that was that shows her. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was so. I've been I've, I've never been without a job since 1997 in archaeology and cultural resources management, unless I chose not to. <laughs> right, and that's Which, that's also a rare thing to say for someone in academia. So it, it's a very different world than the those of us that went the more academic route don't quite have that same amount of luck. <laughs> 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 well, just try convincing your parents that anthropology has good job <laughs> prospects. 
I do uh, have to say, Josh and I go way back, and one of the things that first got me in, interested in history, because I never cared about it one bit when I was in high school and all of that, but Josh, you had a complete set, I think, of the hardcover series of books on civilization by Will and Ariel Durant. Will and Ariel Durant. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, that just impressed me. <laughs> and I thought, that looks really So is this cool. what the two of you did in first grade? Uh, well, this was more like, I don't know, ninth or tenth grade. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. And so I, I don't think I actually ever read those books, but I remember like flipping through them at one point thinking, those are really cool. I want to do that too. And so that put an idea in my head that, I, that you know, a historian would be really cool if you get to do stuff like this. Uh, it took a few years <laughs> of college and a few other false starts with different degrees before I kind of settled back onto history. But I do, I, I think I need to credit Josh Peabody with my uh, history degree at this point. So whenever I write my my master my masterpiece book, I'll put you in the acknowledgments. Awesome. <laughs> well, I should at least thank you for setting him on that path because I really appreciate working with him. Everybody owes Josh oh, to this. So anyway. uh, yeah, my dad my dad had given me those. I still have them. They're on my bookshelf, and I've read yeah. most of them. Let's talk about your job a little bit. So you've mentioned that you work for a consulting company. So first off, let's just talk about what do you do there, and then we can start talking about how you guys use historians and all of that. Perfect. I'm going to start with what the industry is, then I'll go into my company and companies like it, and then we can get down to the day-to-day of what we do. So to begin with, so the industry that I work in is is cultural resources management, and it really is driven by a couple of pieces of legislation. In the 19th century, Europe was pretty obsessed with collecting, you know, ancient civilization stuff. The British Museum has, you know, pretty extensive Egypt section. Uh, <laughs> Basically, where they're going and, to other cultures and taking their stuff. Yep, as Europeans uh, tend and, to do. Yeah. <laughs> and as the as that stuff started to run out in the late 19th century some european countries started to look at the american southwest for other places to sort of plunder and so it did result in the first historic preservation legislation which is the antiquities act of 1906 which was really designed to keep you know foreign museums from plundering american heritage resources mm-hmm. it didn't really give anyone a job though. Uh, that would come later. Following the inundation of you know, the Tennessee Valley, there was a recognition that uh, these large reservoir projects were affecting a lot of significant archaeological sites. And so there was something called the 19th, well, there was the Reservoir Salvage Act that was passed in 1960. And what it did was mandate that prior to these reservoirs being inundated with water, that there be some kind of inventory of what's being lost in that process. And that was the first time you see really archaeologists outside of universities going to work (laughs) on things and and actually capturing some of the government dollars applied to those projects. And then the major one that really created the industry was 1966, the National Historic Preservation Act, which was primarily written by architectural historians. It was, again, the recognition that just nationally there was you know, through the construction of highways and other infrastructure type things, especially that um, both standing structures that were valuable in terms of their history uh, and then also archaeological resources were being destroyed 
without any kind of mitigation of those effects. Well, it, it really created what my career is, and that is is any federal project, which means a dollar spent by the federal government, so that it extends to any action that anyone does that requires a federal permit. It, it creates, it makes it an undertaking, and under that law. There has to be an inventory, meaning there has to be an identification of what we call cultural resources, and then an evaluation of their historical significance prior to project completion. It didn't really do much until the early 70s, 71, I think, uh, with Executive Order 11583, and that was Nixon actually really set things going and, and essentially the problem with the National Historic Preservation Act was it, it didn't create a funding pathway. It just said project proponents had to do it. And so there was a lot of not doing anything. Uh, that executive order set up that up to but not, not exceeding 1% of the total project cost would be sort of set aside for compliance with the Historic Preservation Act. So then starting in the 1970s, we have, you know, the National Environmental Policy, yeah, we have NEPA and CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act. Those got us into the state-level projects that didn't have federal dollars. And in the intervening years, I mean, the 80s was really when you started to see actual full-blown cultural resource management companies who were doing this compliance work. Those companies, there, there's a number of, of them nationally that just do, say, archaeology or architectural history. So that's the industry, and it's built around state and federal uh, legislation aimed at preservation and protection, or at least mitigation of effects to cultural resources. The major thing is all those recognize that just like air quality or water, clean water, animals are heritage, and those things that serve as evidence of our heritage are a part of the natural environment. So companies so, like yours generally get hired by, I don't know, federal, state, local projects in order to basically do the cultural resources equivalent of an environmental impact report? Right. Well, well we so companies like mine, you know, I'm sitting in an office with biologists and air quality specialists and other archaeologists and historians, and, and we do permitting and environmental impact analysis. And so we get hired by state or federal agencies and also private sector project proponents, people who are constructing things, and we do all the work necessary to be compliant with the various environmental laws. So on a day-to-day -day basis, there's three pieces to what we do. Identification of resources, so once there's a project, once we have the work, what we do is we we start to, because most of the archaeological resources we're working with are prehistoric, our, our work tends to start with going out and physically looking for artifacts and things. And then just to give some perspective, the number of archaeological sites recorded in Sacramento County is over 9,000 archaeological sites, which is usually kind of alarming to the layperson just because there tends to be this idea that archaeology is somewhere else, yeah, but not kind of in your backyard until you go to put a swimming pool in and then you discover that right. it's there. And then the, our historians, obviously, if we have standing structures, then our architectural historians, they immediately go to work. Their, or their, their pre-field or identification phase starts with, with archive research. And the kinds of history you're doing there is really a context narrative 
because what your your second phase is, the second thing we do. So after we have a project that is occurring in a place, we need to describe and characterize the resources within it and then evaluate what the project effect on those things will be. Say, for example, tearing down a building that was constructed in 1870 and putting a Walmart on top of it or something. We evaluate what the historical significance of the building is and then make a statement about what the effect of tearing that structure down and putting something on top of it is. So when you're brought in by, I guess, just using the Walmart example, if Walmart wants to build a a store on a site that has historical buildings, you would write up the report basically given the significance. Do you then provide some sort of recommendation or, because I'm assuming you don't have any like binding power of law to say that, no, you can't do this because this is important. Your job is to just identify the importance and then and then the powers that be will handle that? Or Yes, pretty much. Okay. So what we do, for, for better or worse, the, the way that we assess the significance is we apply four criteria and... They're the same with subtle nuances across NEPA, CEQA, various other state environmental quality acts, and the National Historic Preservation Act. But the four criteria are essentially this. The first is the resource associated with events that rise to the level of national significance. The second criteria is, is the resource you know, associated with individuals say, for example, Monticello or something, who are important figures in, in American history. A third criteria is, does this resource exemplify the work of a master? Uh, we call that criteria cute building. It's, you know, is it something that's unique and significant that, say, for example, in the architectural world, you have millions and millions of Eichler homes. And they're all kind of interesting architecturally, but there's just a ton of them. But then you have other architects who did sort of either their defining work or something very definitive and, and different. And then the fourth criteria is really kind of where the archaeologists toil most of the time, and that is, does the resource have the ability to provide information relevant to scientific inquiry? And then what you do is you you essentially build an argument that it meets one or more of those criteria or not. And if it does, the evaluation then moves to the second piece, which is, say, for example, it's associ- you know, the, the resources associated with, let's take a battlefield, for example, and it's a, a famous battlefield. You then have to discuss whether or not the existing condition of that resource communicates its significance, meaning you could have a very significant place on a landscape associated with something that historically is very significant, but its integrity is diminished to such a point that you wouldn't know it by looking at it. Mm. So once we apply the criteria, we then we start to discuss that aspect of those resources. And then, as you kind of alluded to earlier, no, we don't. We can't stop projects. We can't say something so significant that you just you can't do that. We don't have that kind of power. We can recommend and we can attempt to avoid things. We, we do that with highways a lot, where you can just go around, potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the most of the federal legislation, NEPA and, and AHPA, is really focused on avoiding things. And, it's, and that's the nature, it's because of the nature of those projects that you see at the federal level. They are things like highways or, you know, at the Forest Service, it was timber harvesting. And what we would do is just find all the archaeological resources or buildings or whatever, and we'd just cordon them off, and they just wouldn't fall trees in those places. And so they just avoided 
those impacts. If there's no avoiding the impacts, though, we go to a mitigation. And so if something, you know, and that's where we take then ha those criteria that we applied and, and significance discussion and the integrity discussion, and we start to develop ways to, well, to mitigate those impacts. And so it might be just writing a very intricate and detailed history that's available to the public for something that was historically significant, uh, so that at least there's that documentation there and people still the public can access and experience it at least in some kind of document or something, or an interpretive display. Like, here's this interesting thing that used to be here. You're looking at an overpass now, but it used to be, you know. There, there's a Target in Sacramento that I worked at for one day where they had a plaque up on the wall because there used to be a, a baseball diamond back in the late 1800s uh, where the Target store now stands. So I'm guessing that's kind of what you're getting at is that you know, you can acknowledge the, the thing that happened in the past, but it's also you're not going to necessarily stop all development till the end of time. You can still make a note that there yeah. was. If you happen to look at that wall in Target, you'll know that there was a baseball diamond there once. Exactly. So what we do, what we do is is exactly that, over and over and over again. <laughs> uh, and that's one of the most, that's one of the more interesting parts of the job, really. You know, sitting next to me is our senior architectural historian, and God, talk about someone to take a walk around downtown with. The encyclopedic knowledge of every building and the history of every one of them, and is pretty cool because especially when your clients are agencies like Caltrans, you you end up learning the history of all sorts of places and and that's the first thing you have to do and that's one of the major parts of NHPA is in that inventory phase you have to demonstrate to the review agencies we have state historic preservation officers who review all of our documents and they either concur with our findings or they don't but you have to demonstrate that you actually kind of know the history before you start to make statements that there are or aren't things there and and what their significance is so we do write quite a lot of historical context for each project, and that's research at the state library, and we do a lot of outreach to local historical societies. But what I think is the neat part of the job is essentially after 10 years of doing it or so, you know, you'll end up having written the history of like 500 different little places all over, you know, wherever you're working. To me, that's neat. Right. So your office, you employ people from a variety of different academic fields. You say you've got biologists, and, and they're, they're fine, I'm sure. But let, just to focus on the historians, so you are hiring generally public historians that have background in curating, or are you looking more for research historians? What, what kind of historians generally do you find working in places like yours? Yeah, the two full-time staff people in the Sacramento office here have degrees in public history with an emphasis in architecture, and they are what's most important in every any job is writing ability. What you have to do is, is write a historical context that someone's going to read, and they're going to decide whether your decisions on its significance based on your ability to make that argument, they're going to concur or not concur. So communication is critical and written communication is absolutely, you, you don't last long if you can't, if you don't write good, you don't last long. <laughs> you don't write pretty. Well, and, and, and it's a competitive industry. So also people who are very good at archive research because you can you can toil and spend an incredible amount of time accomplishing almost nothing and you can have another person who really knows how to do archive work very efficiently get the kind of information you need to do a, a comprehensive evaluation you know very quickly so people who are organized 
write well and are efficient at doing research. I, over the years, I've found people that are efficient at research are the people who seem to really, really, really like history. We have in our employee, like I said, two full-time people here, two part-time historians. One's a graduate student working on his PhD at UC Davis, so he's kind of voluntarily part-time. We're hiring another architectural historian, and in the western region, which would be Arizona, California, Oregon, uh, Washington, and Alaska, we have about five architectural historians in California in the cultural resources management, people who fall under that history part of cultural resources management, I was trying to figure out how many there are because there isn't a kind of state organized like group that I could just kind of look at their roles and figure out how many there are. I know what it is for archaeologists. There's about 1,200 archaeologists working in California right now. Huh. Uh, there's about two to 300 historians. And this is uh, obviously not just in your company, but in... Yeah, that's doing the same work, but for different companies or independently. And that's that's another thing in terms of job prospects, is that you can be an architectural historian or a historian and do that work either as an independent contractor. There's also a number of companies that just do historical work for compliance. There's one in Davis called JRP, which is pretty highly respected in California. Uh, I think they're probably 20 people working there, and that's all they do is history and architectural history. And there's some, some kind of interesting things they're into also because, so they do your your kind of compliance work, but they also do a lot of legal consulting, uh, especially with things like doing the, the historical research, research necessary to establish uh, water rights, land rights that are in dispute and things like that. Well, I think you touched on something that's really important because especially when, when you're teaching online or when you're working on developing a program online, you have students that it seems to click about how, how to conduct research, what's appropriate, where to go to find the research, and that it is a laborious task. You know, you're not just looking at one thing, finding out all the information, and then you're done. You just have to write it up. And I think that's, that's what's so difficult for a lot of students sometimes is that, you know, it's very easy especially if you're working online, to decide to do a quick Google search and to go to find the information, <laughs> whatever pops up first, and then that's your research. Obviously, you won't do well in your courses, and what you're explaining is that you also won't be able to hold a job like this if that's your, your vision of research. So I think what you've emphasized is the importance of research and the importance of detail and of, of not only conducting that research but analysis as well, which is, a, you know, for any students listening, I think is a really important lesson that they can take away from this talk. Yeah, and, and you, you can kind of imagine that because of the way we meet that compliance for the legislation we're, we're operating under, those criteria, it's, it's extremely important when something was constructed and who constructed it. it there's, there's critical pieces of information that have to be found quickly and correct. But then there's the other aspect, which is putting the clothes on the, on the hanger, which is you have to develop a historical context we had a project a few years ago that uh, there was a Titan missile base, uh, which is pretty neat to go into. We had an agency reviewer. We wrote up the, the record documenting the resource, and then we wrote up the historical context for Titan missile. And we ultimately recommended that the resource was not eligible, and it was mainly because it's like, it's neat, but we know everything we need to know. It comes from a period where the documentation is really good. You don't really need to have a Titan missile base to experience it, especially considering the fact that on the landscape, you know, the public doesn't experience it. You see like kind of a big 
concrete slab, but beyond that, you don't, you know, you don't really experience what's what's underground and things like that. But the agency reviewer actually commented and said, I disagree that you feel that it's ineligible because the historic context is so interesting. And so we kind of had to go back and forth and say, yeah, it, it is an interesting context. Titan missiles were really cool and the associated infrastructure, <laughs> but it doesn't really communicate much, the actual base. It doesn't do that second part of the significance criteria, which is like you don't need the Titan missile base to appreciate the history of yeah uh, it's it's not necessarily yeah. worth preserving it just just to have it because we've like you said we've got documentation we probably have you know video footage of what it looks like you've got photography exactly. you've got written documentation so what you're saying here reminds me of issues that I see pop up a lot of times with history students in that they can be really good at telling the narrative of a historical event, but they're not always good at explaining why we should care about what they're talking about. My right. uh, When I was in grad school, I had one of my dissertation advisors. His favorite question was, so what? And it would drive me nuts because I'd go into this big, long thing about, you know, this is what's happening in this environmental regulation. They'd, at the end of it, he would just sit there and just look at me and just say, so what? I'd be like, well, it's it's interesting by itself and he would say no it's not you need to explain to me why why do i care about this i don't i've never done research on like you say the environmental protection act or anything so why should i care about this and that's one of the things that students always struggle with and it sounds like that's one of the things they really have to master in order to be successful in a, in a uh, position like yours the difference between interesting and relevant yes yes exactly and you all, and so it requires some amount of confidence in yourself yeah. You know, you're, you know, and, and you are going to get people reviewing your work and you have to feel like you know what you're doing. <laughs> uh, because we do have, I have a, I have a couple of people on staff that they, they don't do the evaluation part of the work and it's mainly because they really don't have the confidence in themselves to do it. And so they're, they have strengths in other areas and, and that's perfectly fine, but they just, they just don't really like doing that part of it. It's an occupation where we talk a lot about each other. Especially in terms of like, did you hear what they did on this project, or look, did you see what was happening here? And I and I think it's because everything's built on our ability to argue. And for archaeology, it's a, and well, in history, archaeology is a social science. History is not even a science. You know, quantifying the significance of history is a weird thing to do. Yes, it's it's kind of like you know the Exxon Valdez spill where you had to determine like you know when otters were three hundred bucks. It's like that's just <laughs> weird. It, it, you know, like. <laughs> So for a lot of people, there's there's two ways to build an argument. One's to do it in a really methodical way with as much information as you can present in as linear and concise a manner. And the other way is to be a jerk about it and to be pushy and loud and boisterous. And it's kind of a charismatic, <laughs> but, but that's something that people do. But that's part of the reason that, like I was saying, I have a few people on staff, they just, they really don't want to be responsible for building those arguments and presenting those, especially to the review agencies. They're not comfortable with that kind of scrutiny of their work. And there's a lot of really weird logic that comes out during those reviews. You know, like, if you knew what I knew, you would you would agree with my position. It's like, well... Right. Then you're right back to the whole thing about, well, you need to explain <laughs> why I care, because it's not obvious, and I don't necessarily share your interests, and so you need to convince me that this is worth my time and your energy. Yeah, the space between the title and your conclusions... It was lacking. We <laughs> <laughs> need some more footnotes uh, here. <laughs> yeah, that's that's actually the hardest thing in our industry. All the historians do footnotes, and then all the archaeologists do uh, uh, 
like uh, Chicago Anthro style. We don't do footnotes. We do parenthetical references. And so when we have both types of resources, <laughs> we have to, we we. Yeah. You should see what happens to a Word document when you start pasting <laughs> with reckless abandon. <laughs> it becomes extremely unstable. <laughs> uh, so familiarity with Word. <laughs> that's that's a, another skill. So how would a newly minted history major, either with an undergrad degree or a grad degree, but kind of a generic history student who has just graduated from college, how do you think they should get into a field like yours if they're interested in this kind of stuff? I think that before they finish... <laughs> oh, oh, right. Uh, so planning? Yeah, okay. Yeah. That, well, they should take a... or Every college has some kind of planning course that will at least make them aware of the laws and what this industry is. Because it really, I mean, if you have a history degree and you can do the work, it's, it's a matter of just knowing where the job postings are. You know, for example, the, the Society for California Archaeology, which is our state not-for-profit group for archaeologists, I think there's probably 25 open job postings in California right now, and that includes archaeologists and historians. So I think, one, just taking one of those planning courses that would familiarize them with <laughs> what the basis of the industry is. And then it's a matter of engaging those potential employers. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, obviously, you need a Vita and a, a good solid writing sample is going to help. Preferably not one that your professor edited so well for you that it's not actually a writing sample of yours. It's a sample of good editing. We get that a lot. Well, I bet you do because there's I mean, one of the traditional weaknesses in a lot of history programs at in universities and colleges is that obviously the people that are teaching these classes are all academics and very few of them have ever done any work in a job like yours and so they don't train their students to know where to go to find these types of jobs they may know abstractly that these jobs exist but you know a full-time academic historian working at UC Davis or Ohio State or wherever isn't going to have those connections and so a lot of students come out of our programs not knowing about these. They may not even know the names of the companies that do this kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's going to be a challenge for students is figuring out, okay, a lot of companies like yours get listed under generic sounding names like environmental consulting or something like that. And that right. it, it doesn't have historian in the title. <laughs> so a lot of students <laughs> right. won't know where to go with that or what to do with that or that that's even an option. And so I think that's something worth spreading, even if it's just in this interview here, that there are positions out there for historians, even if they they may not have the name historian in the company name. But there's a lot of companies out there that hire historians to do this stuff. It's just not obvious. And a lot of students aren't trained to find that stuff, unfortunately. And I guess that's that's our problem, not yours, I guess. But still, that's that's kind of the reality of the situation, I suppose, because you've mentioned at, in other conversations that you sometimes even have trouble finding candidates for openings for historians, and so you've had to do some extensive searches. Like you mentioned before, you're importing a historian from abroad for your, your most recent position, and so it's just interesting that local there's probably a lot of local history students that have graduated who probably complain about not being able to find jobs, but they wouldn't even know to apply at a place like yours. Exactly, and so we actually have initiatives internally at this company where we establish relationships to 
make those connections. For example, I do have, I maintain relationships with the professors at Chico State so that I can keep a steady feed of good graduate and undergraduate students, you know, and they can develop <laughs> those potential future employees. There's not a lot of public history programs that are geared to the profession. And so the few that are, we're, we're doing a similar thing with those. And, and actually, Sacramento State happens to be one. I think if you just Googled cultural resources management jobs, you would have opportunities. Well, since, uh, since Josh and James don't have any recommendations this week, I'm going to talk about one that I just got over the, over the holidays. And it, I haven't actually played it yet, but it looks really cool. Are you guys, have you, either of you heard of a card game called Super Fight? No. Okay. Well, this is, it's a card game kind of like Cards Against Humanity, where you pick some random cards and you have to make something out of the cards. Like Cards Against Humanity, you have to come up with a really weird sentence, basically. But in this case, you're given character cards and attribute cards and there there's two players and a jury each player who takes their character card and their characteristic card and then you have to say my guy would beat your guy in a fight because dot 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 and so the super fight is basically the argument you come up with it you've got the players and then you have to say my guy would beat your guy in a fight and then you have a debate and then there's a jury at the end of it that, that votes on whether on who wins on all of that. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up here is because Superfight recently issued a new expansion pack called the History Deck, where they take figures from history and characteristics from history and locations from history, and you have to basically make the argument of who's going to win the fight between these two. And so oh, you've no. got... You've got character cards like the 1986 Chicago Bears or Buzz Aldrin or the Hungry Ghosts of the Donner Party, um, any Queen Elizabeth. And so you've got a character, and then you've got a characteristic, which would be something like leading the proletariat revolution or armed with water balloons filled with Greek fire. And then you've got destinations like the Oregon Trail or Disneyland on opening day, li the Library of Alexandria on fire. And then they put weird little barriers in place, like all fighters are on enemy pirate ships, or they're all fighters are wearing corsets, just to see if that changes the outcome or something. And so the job is that you have to take one of those characters, again, just using the ones I picked there, I'll say, you know, the swarm of plague rats uh, leading the proletariat revolution on the Oregon Trail, surrounded by medieval warriors trying to kill each other. And then you're supposed to take that and make an argument for why that character would win in a fight against the other <laughs> against the other person. And it's, like I said, I haven't had a chance to actually play it with people yet, but I just I just sit here looking at them myself and I'm very amused by it. So um, huh. my recommendation is Super Fight with the History Deck expansion pack. So anyway, that's, that's my recommendation for the week. Well, let's wrap this up. Uh, Josh, thank you very much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. Yes, thank you. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at snhuhistory at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at filibusterhist. For James Fennessy and Joshua Peabody, I'm Rob Denning. Bye! It would probably actually be fairly chaotic for us to try to play this game, since you don't have cards in front of you. I could just read something off to you and make you two fight. Maybe I should do that from now on. In every interview, I'll just have people fight. That should just be, yeah, exactly. For my amusement. <laughs> so what would, your, what would you assign us? I mean, we've made it this far, Rob. Let me just, I'll just start picking some at random here. And let's see what, uh, see what you guys come up with. All right, all right, so James, you are Davy Crockett, and... Uh, Josh, you are Anne Boleyn, 
And let's see. Awesome. James, you are flying the Wright Brothers' first working airplane. Okay. And Josh is Anne Boleyn, armed with an English longbow. You're both fighting in 1920s Chicago, and all weapons have been replaced with Bronze Age technology. I don't know what the hell wow. you guys are going to do with this. So. <laughs> That's the way it would work. You don't, have to, you don't actually have to make do the fight right now. That would be kind of cruel to just throw on you like that. But that's how the game works. James, you would be Davy Crockett flying the Wright Brothers' first working airplane. Josh would be Anne Boleyn armed with an English longbow, both doing it in 1920 Chicago, and all weapons have been replaced by Bronze Age technology. And then you just go. And then you've got a jury that sits there and decides who wins. And if the jury decides it's a draw, you both... Start over. You pick new cards and just fight all over again, and it just it just goes until one side finally browbeats the jury into deciding that one side or the other wins. And it seems like it's one of those games that would be really awesome if there's a whole lot of alcohol involved. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, we have no alcohol involved right now, so we'll uh, put that on pause and come back to it at some point when we're all together and. That sounds great. <laughs> right. Man, I, you had me thinking. I mean, what would I do with that? I mean, right. because if we're going back to Bronze Age technology, I would assume that any type of bronze weapon that I had in that airplane is probably going to significantly lower the altitude at which I can fly it. Yeah, yeah. And Davy that... Crockett knows how to fly in the first place. Right. So. And it course, is the Windy was... City, which could work to your advantage. Oh, I think that that's was true. one of the only if reasons the Kitty Hawk that they got the thing off the ground. <laughs> exactly. So I could hit the updrafts in between, like, the various, just, well, I guess, like, the, uh, I guess many of the tall buildings would not be there during 1920s. So I just have to form alliances with some of the uh, the Prohibition-era gangsters and take you out on the ground. Possibly. Well, I think Anne Boleyn may actually know how to use a longbow. And I don't know, your Davy Crockett, I think your your Bronze Age Bowie knife is uh not doesn't quite have the distance that the longbow has. No, that's true. I'd have to find a way to circle above you and drop it on your head. Mm-hmm. But I could call my friends the hawks and the bears. Uh, neither, yes. I'm not referring to any uh, sport, professional sports teams, just creatures in the wild. I could call them to my assistance and then just have them attack you from the sky and on the ground. That's true. Because I'm... Davy Crockett could speak with animals, right? Isn't that? <laughs> Maybe not. I, I haven't figured out the strategic advantage of the third mammary gland of Anne Boleyn, right? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... But now suddenly you guys are playing the game. Well, I'll be damned. Now suddenly we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I, that's how it works. I mean, basically, there's no instructions. It's all about you know you can come up with any argument you want. And so yeah, if you want to call, if you want to pull an Aquaman and call all the bears and hawks to come help you out, then as long as you can convince the jury that Davy Crockett can talk to the animals, then sure, I guess that's go for it. Let's <laughs> see what you can do with what a, it. What a terrible superhero with a lame superpower. <laughs> Now. <laughs> Why would you insert Aquaman into this conversation? Anyway. <laughs> anyway. So that's how Super Fun works. So, uh, you know, find it on store shelves near you, I suppose. Anyway. Definitely. Uh, that sounds really fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've been looking forward to uh, dragooning people into playing it with me because as soon as you break out something called the history deck, everybody else tends to roll their eyes and think, God, I don't want to fight against the, the history nerd. But... I don't know everything. I didn't know about the third. Yeah, at least. 
So James, uh, Josh is. I think we decided did did we we decided that we actually met back in first grade, right? I believe so. Yeah. In uh, Collins class. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So Josh and I have known each other for a while. You know, a good five, ten years now. And That's pretty fantastic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then as as. Rob, I want to say Robbie. Sorry, that's uh, as Rob. I don't know if I've ever Whatever. called you Rob. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> or I know I've called you Doctor. Uh, doctor, Doctor, uh, Doctor. Um, I gotta watch that movie again. Uh, the 